Welcome to a Catalyst for Change podcast, where we are a catalyst to inspire compassion among people, promote collaboration with leaders, and build capacity for programming. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Catalyst for Change podcast. I'm so glad that you've joined us today. This podcast is hosted by Support After Abortion. Support After Abortion exists to end the demand for abortion by helping to heal those who have been impacted. We do that through three core pillars. That is, we are here to promote compassion and really help people understand that there is hope and healing after abortion. We want to help to build collaboration, and we're going to talk about that today with our guest. We want to make sure that leaders know where to go to get help and support and equipping. And ultimately, we want to build capacity for our industry. We want to make sure that we are going to be able to truly support the millions of men and women who are hurting after abortion. I'm your host today. My name's Lisa Rowe, and I'm the CEO of Support After Abortion, and I am joined by Melissa Odin. She is president and founder of the Abortion Survivors Network, and I am so excited to have her today. Welcome, Melissa. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so glad that you're with us today because you and I both share a very similar training. You are a therapist as well. And when we first connected, Melissa, it was just like total, like right away, just synergy and just this momentum in our conversation. And so um, before we get started, and I really go back to that conversation, because I really think our viewers would love to hear kind of the clinical side of our conversation. Can you tell people a little bit about um, why you started your ministry and, and what brings you here today? Yeah, I think most people in the pro-life community know me because of my personal experience as opposed to my professional experience. So, you know, for me, I can't separate the two things. You know, God very intricately intertwined everything in my life as he does in everyone's. But I started the Abortion Survivors Network because not only did children survive abortions in our world still today, but I am one of them. So I age myself really quickly. It's cool. It doesn't bother me. I'm 43. <laughs> I have to talk about that from a historical context kind of place uh, because I think it's important that people understand abortion was legalized in 1973. My birth mother, Ruth, was forced to have the abortion that was meant to end my life just four years after that. And I do truly believe, Lisa, if, if Roe and Doe wouldn't have happened, Ruth's experience could have been so different. My life could have been so different. And so that's really what connected you and I together is, you know, I, I do have this really diverse background. So found out my story when I was 14, stumbled, struggled, you know, screamed to God about why he made me who I am. And then went out on that journey of healing in my own life and then walking out, healing other people. My heart is healing 120%. I think people identify me as like this really fierce fighter. And I am, but only because I've healed. And I think I fight too. And I think you're the same way. I fight because the fight we fight isn't just for truth and lives to be saved and transformed, but we fight because people deserve to be healed. And our culture out there tells women and men something very different than what we know is true. 
And the same is to be said for abortion survivors and their families. We are told we don't exist. Things like this don't happen. Uh, we are made up uh, in order to advance an agenda on abortion. And it's so disrespectful, so traumatic to everybody across the board, no matter their abortion experience. So I may be a fighter. I obviously have been <laughs> since birth, but I fight because I want better for That's everyone. Good. So if you don't mind, let's kind of unlayer what you just shared, because I think it's phenomenal from my perspective as, a, as somebody who enjoys walking through that healing journey, both personally and with others. So you might have people watching right now, and maybe you've gotten this before, Melissa, but you might have somebody say like, you survived an abortion. Your life is great. You, you didn't die. How, how is that so not the response I feel like you want to hear? Yeah, I just saw a fellow survivor posted a picture over the weekend and it said something to the extent of, you know, telling someone who has experienced trauma um, to just like get over it and question why can't you just be happy. It's kind of like the fire department showing up at your house when the house is on fire and then saying, why can't you just step out? Like, come on, we're here. It's good. <laughs> uh, yeah, it seems impossible. And it really, you know, is impossible in many respects. And you're right, Lisa, that is a common response. People will say, well, can't you just be happy? We can be if we go through the process of unpacking all of the emotional, mental, spiritual, and sometimes physical baggage from what we've survived. And you know, I, I think what I find in survivors is very similar to what you find with the men and women that you work with. Everybody's experience is a little bit different, but there are so many similarities. And I think nobody's ever really talked about it for survivors before. I think it, it is a fairly new thing for someone like me to say, you know, hey, by the way, as I go out and share my story, can I also tell you that this is not who I wanted to be? Can I tell you that I worked through my anger, my resentment, learned to forgive, still work on forgiveness every single day when life happens, it's worth it. Uh, can I tell you that even though physically I am pretty healthy, even though I survived an abortion, the trauma that that abortion had on my body affects me every single day. Most of us as survivors deal with chronic pain, chronic fatigue, um, you know, immune system issues. We are not who you may expect us to be. Yes, some survivors are missing limbs and some have cerebral palsy, usually as a result of lack of oxygen during the procedure and even after they're born. Uh, but most of us have these invisible wounds. And, you know, I think one of the things that I've loved so much in years of ministry in working with men and women who have experienced abortion is we are more alike than we are different. And our world out there somehow wants to pit women and men who have been affected by abortion against us as survivors. You know, unfortunately, even in the pro-life movement, I had somebody who testified in a hearing last week after me. And you know what he said? Mm -hmm. <laughs> He said, Melissa's mother was not a victim. 
She had how many opportunities? And he went down the line. She could have ran away. She could have screamed. She could have jumped out of the car. She should have jumped off the table. And I was listening to it thinking, how dare you? How dare you talk about her like that? And how dare you infer that for anybody else out there in the world? It didn't matter that I had already said 64% of women identify feeling pressured into their abortion. He had to go through that whole process. And as we talk about things that are disrespectful and demeaning, that's one of them. Yeah, yeah. And, and I feel like it's really important for somebody who's watching who might have a different perspective to know that we all question, you know, our experiences. We all have something, if not some things that we've walked through. And this is like the very first thing that you contended with, but you didn't even know you were contending with it. Melissa, because what happens to a person who finds out that they were not maybe um, obviously coerced, but maybe not wanted by their biological family, that their life wasn't um, maybe valued enough, I guess we could say that, um, that it was worthy of an abortion and all the list of things and things and things like, how does that from an emotional level really begin like that foundation for you growing up? Maybe you knew it or didn't, but it, it how does that do, what happens there? Yeah, I think most survivors tend to be able to identify if we really take a close look at ourselves, which is painful, right, for any of us. But we can identify, and I can say we and include myself in that, that the, the need to please people, to be accepted. You know, I was the people pleaser, type A. You know, my parents, my adoptive parents were so supportive, right? No matter what, like my parents have always been my biggest cheerleaders. But I can tell you, Lisa, that even when I was in elementary school, my deepest fear was letting them down. My job was to make sure everything was okay. They were okay. I was okay. So there was this very foundational piece to me, right? That said, you have to be okay and you need to make sure other people are okay. And, you know, I still unpack that today sometimes, even though I've had so much healing, you know, I, I look upon so many past relationships and realize, Melissa, you held on to that, or you, you put up with this, that, and the other thing, even though you wouldn't ever want anybody to do that because you were so deeply afraid of being rejected. Mm -hmm. You so badly wanted to hold on to a person because you were trying to maintain control over someone that you lost so long ago. And so many survivors talk about that a lot before they even know their story. There's um, so many feelings and thoughts and even dreams of looking for someone, whether it's their twin that they find out later or their you know, desperately grabbing for their biological mother. And no matter what anybody's experience is, I think many people, or I would say most probably, can relate to what it's like to experience rejection very early on in life and how that really does affect us uh, for years to come, even when we don't recognize it. And for survivors, it just starts a little bit earlier than most people. It starts in the womb. And that's part of what our healing curriculum really educates survivors and families about is, you know what, when we are rejected in the womb, whether it's by choice, 
because that is sometimes a choice, or it's by circumstance, which tends to be more often. You know, by choice or circumstance, survivors experience rejection in the womb. And so we enter the world with these deep, deep wounds. Wow, you said it so well. And as you were talking, I'm reflecting on your birth mom. You know, what happened or what do you know happens as birth moms begin to experience, oh my goodness, maybe those lies that this isn't a baby, it's a clump of cells, it won't hurt you, it's not that big of a deal. What happens when a birth mom goes through the experience of choosing abortion and then realizes, oh my goodness, it's not what I thought it was? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in my case is a little bit, I always have to say dramatic. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. He and I have had a lot of discussions about that. <laughs> I don't like drama, but now I know why. Um, but, you know, in my circumstance, Ruth was forced by her family to have the abortion. They were, her mom was a medical professional, was able to make it happen. You know, in in my grandmother's circumstances, she knew very much the scientific basis for when life begins. I mean, that same scientific basis helped her force that abortion. So, you know, Ruth knew the truth about life. And so it was incredibly traumatic for her knowing that she could not save her child's life. Uh, You know, physically that abortion was horribly traumatic to her and emotionally and spiritually, it was um, a pain that I can't even begin to imagine. And like so many women, she spent decades of her life with incredible regret. The very first time she sent me a card on my birthday, I was turning 37. And she said, my greatest regret in life is that I didn't run away from my family. And I, I know you hear those same regrets from women. And my response to any woman is always the same. You should never have to run away from someone in order to protect your child. That's not okay. And where is our world in standing up for women when this is a reality for so many women still today? Oh. Yeah, that brings about just some thoughts about the group that I'm currently leading and and how every single one of them attributed their abortion experience to somebody, either disowning them, leaving them, um, you know, judging them. And um, it was just this common thread. Once one woman said it, it was like, oh my gosh, that was my experience. And you know what one of the girls said, and it, 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 I'm having chills right now. She said to me, Lisa, he left me anyways. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And then not only do you live with the regret and pain from an abortion, but now you're living with the pain and loss of a relationship. The pain, another woman said, um, you know, my mom is my soulmate and I can't tell her that I had an abortion experience because it's against our religious, you know, whatever um, views, cultural views. I think it was her was her reasoning, and she's like, and now I feel like I don't have my soulmate. I don't have my best friend because there's a void. I know I haven't told her everything, and just what you just said just resonated really deeply um, in regards to that. that. I hear that from teenage girls, even you know the few yeah. times that I get into high schools, uh, you know those women have said. Uh, my boyfriend, you know, told me that if, if I wanted him to stay with me, I had to have that abortion. 
So even though I didn't want to do it or I knew it was wrong, you know, I did it anyway. And you know what, Melissa, he still left me. Mm-hmm. So hard. And, you know, one of the things that you and I really, really connected on was when we were talking about the generational patterns of behavior, you know, and I think about your mom and I think about how her mom encouraged it. And you have to wonder, did her mom have an abortion experience or something early on that triggered her to have such an egregious response, really reaction to her being coming pregnant young. So talk to us a little bit about Melissa, what you're uncovering as you work with the survivors in your area of expertise, what are you beginning to see as like a common thread or navigating uh, with them? Yeah, I think what I find is not surprising anymore, but I, it was surprising, you know, probably five years ago. When I first started working with survivors, I knew of one other survivor who had had an abortion before she found out her story. And we see that carried out when it comes to abortion secrets coming out. You know, someone is on their deathbed, they make that confession about their abortion, but it's not always just about their abortion, it's about someone else's abortion. So, you know, when we think about how long legalized abortion has been happening, we need to think about what that looks like for generations. So we have grandparents passing away, confessing the secrets of taking their child to have the abortion. And, you know, now I'm at that age where my parents are old enough, you know, to be confessing for a younger generation. Uh, But what we're finding is that it's not just a woman having an abortion and then finding out later that she also survived an abortion, but we also have survivors who knew their stories and were still pressured into having their abortion. And that is a little bit of a perspective shift for not only our culture, but really for the pro-life movement. That's taken a lot of education on my part to really educate people and say, you know, being an abortion survivor doesn't protect us from having another abortion experience. And I think that speaks volumes to the compassion that that you have as an organization and that you are in trying to create in our movement and in our culture to truly understand women and men and this generational impact of abortion. Instead of scratching our heads and saying, oh my gosh, how could they do that? Shouldn't we really be scratching our heads and going, you know, how could anybody do anything different in our culture? That's so good because if we really paint the picture, so here you have a man or a woman who survived an abortion immediately having those rejection roots, right? Mm -hmm. And those show up in so many different ways. It could be the two-year-old that won't um, stop holding on to their caregiver's leg. It could be the three-year-old that still can't sleep on his own or her own. It could be a malnourished child. I mean, like we could go on and on and on while our brain is trying to develop, the first three to five years of life is so pivotal for our brain to feel safe, to develop, to experience the world. But yet we've, we're hearing that we're rejected from the beginning. There's no way to feel safe to be able to build on that. And then life just keeps happening, happening, happening. And then we get to the place where, oh, my body can 
reproduce and, oh, there's a boy that's interested or a girl that's interested. That's what we're hoping that people will start to understand. And I know that's such a passion for yours too. It's like, this is bound to happen unless healing starts to take place, unless culturally we begin to see broken people as needing help and healing instead of let's get you going. You, 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 you got a life to live here and, and not talk about everything. And that was my immediate connection to you, Melissa, is that yes, like, why is it that we can see poverty for cyclical? Why can we say divorce? If your parents get divorced, there's going to be more divorce in your family. Substance abuse pays it forward, right? But yet we can't say like abortion, pay, like that's the same experience that we see across generations. Yeah, I have a 17 year old right now that I've been emailing with over the weekend. And you know, the response is very similar to what we've already talked about. So experienced a lot of rejection, a lot of abuse as a child and bio mom is not in the picture anymore. Uh, but dad, dad's response is, man, you just need to suck it up, move on. And this young woman is going, I just need somebody to talk to. Will you talk to me? And as parents, and as grandparents right now, these supportive people, I think sometimes we think we're doing the right thing by not talking about the issue. <laughs> you know, I mean, as clinicians, right, we know the impact that not talking about issues has. But, you know, as families, we just think, oh, you know, maybe they'll just get it together, right, through gritted teeth. Uh, and we avoid it because we're uncomfortable with it. I mean, there's a million reasons why families don't unpack it and, you know, add in the cultural aspect of things that says, uh, this is a choice and a right. So people are going, well, then, you know, I'm off the hook. But yeah, when we don't talk about it, then we are setting the stage for that same generational issue to pop up. The person who is rejected is looking for love. <laughs> and love, right? exactly, love. exactly. Mm -hmm. And for survivors, it is such a deep seated need. And, you know, I'm so grateful to be working with younger survivors and their families. That gives me so much hope when families reach out and say, you know what, can you walk us through this, how to best support this survivor and continue that support? Because, you know, I'm, I'm experiencing with some of these teenagers, they can be doing well for a little while. We all know how this works. Uh, they can be doing well for a while and then they don't want to talk about it anymore, put it on a shelf. And then what we find is that they're grabbing every identity in the world that they could possibly find, right? I need to fill that void that still exists in me. And as families, that's so hard to talk about. But if we don't talk about it and we don't work our way through it, that pattern will continue. And I think that's fascinating from a, a numbers standpoint. You know, you know how many hundreds of millions of men and women have been impacted by abortion, which makes sense why we see so much of the craziness that we do in the world because we have broken people. But from a survivor standpoint, even we think statistically there are probably, I mean, we're looking at probably at least 20,000 abortion survivors in the United States. And that number gets bigger every year uh, because even though they have perfected how to end a child's life, life still happens. 
So we're talking 400 to 500 live births a year, minimally based on CDC numbers, add in abortion pill reversals, which you and I have been talking a lot about lately. So we are looking at probably thousands of survivors each year. And if we don't address this, that there are survivors and families, we are going to continue to see that pattern played out time and time again. Absolutely, which is why where you are standing in the gap is so pivotal because although the pain will will be there, there's an element of normalization and healing that can happen under your program. And so can you talk to us a little bit about what happens if somebody reaches out or how they might connect with you and, and then what to expect as a part of their connection? Yeah, we've now connected with 361 survivors. Wow. So I was just talking to two more survivors this morning. Most come from the United States, but survivors are represented around the world. And again, everybody's circumstance is a little bit different. We have people who survived attempts at home, which, you know, some people in our world would go, oh, well, you know, they didn't, they're not really abortion survivors. Try telling them that. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to normalize what an abortion survivor is. And it is different from person to person. Not everybody, you know, soaked in a toxic salt solution like me, but their life still has dignity and value. And that attempt affected their lives. Uh, so those that connect with us, you, we really want to support survivors in however they want to be supported. Uh, trust is a struggle. Rejection is a struggle. It doesn't matter uh, how compassionate and supportive we are. I have some survivors who will contact us and I don't hear from them again for another five years because they are just kind of hanging on by a thread until then trying to figure out how do I begin to talk to people about this? That's how deep it runs. But we support people no matter what. And we kind of have a menu of programs that we offer. We have a specific healing workbook written for survivors based on my multitude of experiences personally and professionally. We offer those in a virtual support group. Uh, the next group will start the beginning of March. Uh, we will be doing a face-to-face -face retreat for the first time later this year in Texas. We're actually doing a virtual retreat in February, which is great because it allows survivors around the world to connect and not only work on healing, but talk about, you know what, let's work on some communication skills and how do you communicate uh, effectively when rejection is a key piece of, of your being. Um, we're empowering them in how to use their voice if they call, feel called to do it. And we're equipping them on how to do it. Most people don't know how to truly get involved if that's something that they want to do. Uh, so in a world that says you don't exist, I mean, where would you ever get help and find a way to use your voice and be trained on how to do it? So we do the retreats, we do our, our healing um, small groups, and then we also do community Zooms, which are really important to me. We started it in the pandemic thinking it was just a great way to fill the gap from people having face-to-face -face contact. And what we've realized is that this is a key part of, of what survivors need. Uh, most survivors will say the first time they ever laid eyes on someone, even online, who was also a survivor, radically changes their lives. And then to see them building these friendships and connections um, with people who get it who they can trust, who they can open up to. That is, 
that is just a key piece of healing. Healing happens in community. So those are just some of the healing components that we do. We do a lot of outreach and education and survivors are going to start taking the stage in a big way, those that feel called to share their story. And I'm so excited for them because that's part of our healing too, is being able to use our voice effectively. Yeah, that's so good. And and I love that because we've gotten calls for people that have seen our, our, our name and our marketing and said, Hey, this is my experience. I, my family tried, my mom tried to abort me or whatever the circumstances are. And we've been able to have a place to refer them in you. And that is exactly what we're hoping to do is nobody can be a one and done. And we have to create the places where we're strong and it's just such an amazing ministry that you've been able to cultivate. And so how can people connect with you, Melissa? What would be the way that you would want them to reach out? Our website for the Abortion Survivors Network is abortionsurvivors.org. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at that handle, Parlor. I mean, we're there, but we don't post a lot. Uh, we also have an education and policy center, which is our ability to have a conversation when it comes to policy, and that's educationandpolicycenter.com. And if people want to ask me any questions or reach out for support as a family member or a survivor, my, my email address is melissa at abortionsurvivors.org. Oh, amazing. I am so grateful that our paths have crossed and that there's so much more to come. As Melissa talked about, we are definitely in cahoots um, <laughs> about APR <laughs> with uh, abortion pill reversal. So that's another conversation that we'll have to come back on and have with everyone as it develops. But just the need to really support people where they are in this abortion journey, wherever that is, whether it's somebody who just experienced abortion, somebody 40 years down the road, or maybe you are, like uh, Melissa said, a survivor of an abortion and um, you need support. We want to we run the spectrum because healing is the answer. And without healing, we've, we aren't going to be able to make a mark. So thank you so much, Melissa. Thank I'm so you. grateful. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're so grateful that you took the time to really learn what it is to become a catalyst for change. If you'd like to learn more, visit us at supportafterabortion.com. Thank you for joining us today. If you or someone you know has been impacted by abortion, you are not alone. Contact us today at supportafterabortion.com. If you were inspired by today's message, we welcome you to join the conversation by following us on Facebook or Instagram.